the reason we are talking about Bathsheba on Christmas Day is uh, we are looking at Matthew's gospel and his introduction to the Christmas story, and he points his finger in that direction, and we're trying to uh, come to terms with that. Uh, We've been saying that often in our culture, uh, we look to Christmas, look forward to Christmas, if you have that picture-perfect family scene that just looks like a Hallmark Christmas movie. But if you don't fit that picture, if things aren't uh, in, in all in order and all in the hope and expectation of what this scene is supposed to look like, then you can feel like an outsider to that. And the biblical picture of Christmas is far more realistic. As we look to Matthew's gospel, he opens his Christmas account with a family line, a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, he highlights five women. Highlights, I say, because you normally didn't include the names of women in a genealogy, but Matthew deliberately does so, and does so with five hurting women with difficult pasts, as if to say to us, God's love can overcome where people have brought rejection. And today we're going to look at Bathsheba and God's love for a wanted woman. Now, as soon as I mention the name Bathsheba, the problem that we have is that you will assume that you know the story, even if you haven't gotten your information about the story from the biblical text itself. Um, If we're going to be completely honest, there are a number of you, I'm sure, who've gotten most of your information about David and Bathsheba from VeggieTales. If if you're not familiar with the cartoon, uh, there is a famous VeggieTales episode called King George and the Ducky. And I'll just quickly summarize it for you in case you didn't, uh, weren't weren't part of that, you missed that episode. Uh, that episode. So King George is your typical king enjoying all of the luxuries and privileges of power. Uh, Although he enjoys many things, there's nothing that he enjoys quite so much as taking a nice bath with his favorite rubber ducky. He even gives us a moving musical number called I Love My Duck. And who could, for, who could forget such um, eloquence and such a song? We, we celebrate with him in his uh, enjoyment of his duck. However, on this particular day, he is, uh, while enjoying his bath with his rubber ducky, he gets up from that bath. And with his binoculars, he spies, in fact, another Uh, Another person, in this case, Billy, is having a bath with his rubber ducky, and King George decides he wants that one too. Now, uh, the servant in the story tries to persuade him, talk him out of it. He actually takes him at one point to a royal cupboard where there are hundreds of absolutely identical rubber duckies and... King George looks at all of them and he says, those are yesterday's duckies. I want that one. And and it's a great story. It's a great story of greed, of selfishness, of of some of the the great themes of the biblical story. Uh, And it's told well. It's told in a way that's fun and entertaining. But the problem with the story for our purposes is that the duck has no name. 
And so we can learn much about David in his connection with, if we're going to, if he is a, a parable for King George, um, we can learn much about David, but we learn nothing about Bathsheba. And in a corrective to that, Matthew, as we've said, in his genealogy, he highlights Bathsheba, he points to her, and he wants to show her connection to Christmas and show that she is, in fact, an important part of the Christmas story and in preparation for it. And so today we are going to look at her story, and we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba from uh, from Bathsheba's perspective, because that's what Matthew is pointing us back to, uh, to, to do in just that very thing. So today, the duck has a name. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you look in the little rack in the seat in front of you, there's a little black Bible there you can borrow, and uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read... The first five verses. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of God. Now, I want you to keep that passage open in front of you as we walk through it, because when you, when you are reading in Scripture, what we are not supposed to do is kind of read it, get the gist of the story, and then um, go off and kind of come to our own conclusions about what we should draw from it and what is important about the story. That's not what we're supposed to do. What we are, in fact, supposed to do is read the story and not only look at what the story is, but we, we are to read how the story is told so that we might learn what it is that we are supposed to take away from it, what the conclusions are that we're supposed to draw from the story. And so we're going to walk through this passage slowly and see just exactly where uh, the biblical author is pointing us to and what God wants us to learn from it. Uh, we learn, first of all, in verse 1, that it's springtime and the time when kings go out to war. Uh, winter in Israel, cold and wet. So it's a lousy time to be sending uh, armies into battle. So they would usually wait till springtime. And we learn that's the time that we have arrived at here. And uh, so we're, we're, we're uh, having, having that uh, sense that this is a right timing for a battle. Now, we're not told that this is a time when nations go to war. We're not told this is a time when armies go to war. We're told that this is a time when kings go out to war. So we're very surprised, having been told this is when kings go out to war, we're surprised when we learn that in verse 1, David has remained at Jerusalem. It's a time when kings are supposed to go out to war, 
but this king has decided not to go out to war. That's even more surprising when it says that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Now, surely David didn't send the entire population of Israel. In fact, we, we meet servants and women and others in this story. So he hasn't sent all Israel, but it's a way that maybe your, your teenager shows, uh, shows up at school on a Monday morning and talks about a, a get-together, a party maybe, and they say, everyone was there. It was so great. And they don't literally mean like every single human being in the world was at this party. It just felt like it. It was such a great time. It felt like all the people that you wanted to be there were there. Here, when it says David sent Joab and his servants and all Israel into, into battle, it's not literally every single person. But the message is David has sent the nation to war and the one person, when kings go out to war, he has remained behind. And, and so we, we have this, this picture that, uh, that David should have been there. Then in verse 1, while it's describing the army ravaging the Ammonites and besieging Rabbah, verse 2 shows David getting up from an afternoon nap and strolling about on his, on his rooftop. And so every indication in the way that this story has been told so far is that you have a king who is taking all of the privileges and luxuries of his role, but none of its responsibilities. And I think you and I both know that you don't have to be a king to do that in your role, right? You can be, an, and, and we're not saying that David was always a terrible king. He was, in, in many respects, here, a, a hero in, of many stories. But when we come to this point in his life, he is looking to all of the privileges of his role, but none of its responsibilities. And if you find yourself in that position in, a, a, in any time in your life, Take a note from this passage, that is a time for spiritual temptation. That is a time when you become spiritually vulnerable. And so we're not surprised to read in the very next verse that David wanders into just such a temptation. And we are supposed to be warned of that in our own lives. In verse 3, David has spotted a beautiful woman and she is, uh, and she is bathing. Now, remember at this point, we don't, we don't have time to go back to 1 Samuel and, and the first 10 chapters of, of, uh, of 2 Samuel, but we've been told by this point that David have, has at least seven wives who have, who have been named, in addition to uh, however many concubines who have not been named. So when we're reading this story, we're not supposed to say, well, David must have just been just lacking for company. He was just lonely. It was a, a, a time in his life where he just didn't, didn't have any women around. No, he has more, uh, if he has seven, he has uh, more, more wives than uh, he, he perhaps knows what to do with. And so that wasn't really the issue. As you look at verse 3 and his interchange with uh, this uh, uh, person that he, he is called to his side, it would be comedic if it wasn't so tragic. He calls, calls one of his servants to the roof to ask about the woman. 
And so now you have not only the king ogling this woman as she is bathing or washing, the Hebrew word can mean either, but now he has called along another, uh, another servant and they're both looking at the woman. And you would think, well, maybe he just, he's looking, he needs more information, he needs better clarification. But from the response that we get from the servant, there's no indication that that's actually the case. David asks who the woman is, but as you look, the, the answer comes back as a question. It's like, it's Bathsheba, right? It, it's, it's Eliam's daughter, it's the wife of Uriah. Like, you know who it is, David. And we're, we're led to believe that or draw that conclusion because Uriah wasn't just a nobody, either in the nation of Israel or to David himself. Uh, we learn later that he is one of uh, David's elite soldiers. He is one of the mighty men. He, he's a part of uh, a top team known as the 30. And these were, uh, they had the three, they had the 30. These were at the top. They would take the toughest assignments. Uh, and they are kind of a mercenary band. You notice that Uriah is a Hittite. These were from all over. They are a band of, of elite soldiers who had gathered around David before he'd even come to the throne. While he was still being hunted down by Saul, you had this group of mighty men that had gathered around him. And so we're to picture a man who is uh, due great loyalty and, and an obligation from David. Someone that David should have been watching out for. And yet he is instead uh, looking on his wife. Now, if David really didn't know who she was... When the answer comes back from the servant, we're expecting that David will say, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? This is Uriah's wife? I, 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 I shouldn't be, be even anywhere near her. But he doesn't say that. In fact, uh, he's more like, I'm glad, that we're, I'm glad that we're on the same page about who this woman is. Bring her to me. And so begins David's descent. With that, messengers are dispatched to get her, and he takes her to his bed. Now, one of the ways that the narrator dis um, describes the power that David possesses and the power dynamics in the relationship comes through a word that's repeated not only in our little passage here, but actually gets repeated many times throughout the entire chapter, and the word is send. So in verse 1, David sends Joab, sends his servants, sends Israel into battle. In verse 3, he sends someone to inquire about Bathsheba. In verse 4, he sends messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. Later in verse 6, he'll send word to Joab, and the word is to send Uriah to him. And the impression you get from all of this sending of everybody by David is that David is the man. He's the one who calls all the shots. He sends people here and there. They come and they go. Bathsheba, on the other hand, doesn't get to send uh, very much in this chapter. In fact, she only has one chance to speak. And she sends word to David. Verse 5 just says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Bathsheba is without power, and she's denied a voice. She doesn't get to object. 
She doesn't get to explain herself. She doesn't get to speak and tell her side of the story. She doesn't get to explain her role. She is without a voice, and the only opportunity she has to share her voice is to uh, announce the selfish, uh, uh, the, the consequences of the selfish actions of uh, David himself. I'm pregnant. That's all she gets to say. Her story is given here for everyone who has been denied a voice. Bathsheba is told for the sake of the person who feels like they're a pawn in somebody else's story, somebody else's game. And the message is that God sees you. He hears you. He understands you. And that's the first takeaway from Bathsheba's story. God sees you when you're not given a voice. She ends up in the Christmas story, and Matthew is pointing us back. Go, if you want to understand Christmas and where it comes from, go back and look at Bathsheba. Go back and look at her story. And so it, it gives us that, that, that picture of God seeing this one who was denied a voice. Now, before we move on, I need to address the, the elephant in the room. Some of you think that I have been thus far too lenient on Bathsheba. You think, uh, really, for 3,000 years now, and this will probably continue counting for however many more uh, uh, years before the Lord returns, people have been accusing Bathsheba. They have said uh, she is a seductress. She is trying to find some way to... To, to make her way into the palace. And, and so she has you know, positioned herself with uh, this bath and, and what, in order to, to, to get David. And so uh, many people have seen her as some uh, evil seductress. Are those allegations true? How do we understand Bathsheba's role? It's important that we see them because it's an important part of her story, and the Christmas message. So let's start with the most common one. What was she bathing on the roof for? What's that all about, right? That doesn't seem like a very good idea, right? Surely there's some blame to be placed on her for doing something so, so careless and maybe provocative. It, it even comes up, if anybody, many of you probably know, the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. The, it shows up in, in uh, his song. He says, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. Hallelujah. It's a beautiful melody. The terrible lyric. The, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. Hallelujah. No. No Hallelujah. You don't praise the Lord for what David did on that night. There's nothing worthy about that. What about the, the bathing on the roof part? Now, I've read the story. I've walked you through the story. You have the story maybe open in front of you. Could somebody point to the verse where it says that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof? It's not there. She wasn't bathing on the roof. David was the one on the roof, according to verse 2, not Bathsheba. In fact, in ancient Israel, you didn't put your baths, your, your baths up on the roof. It just didn't happen. She wasn't on the roof. David was. 
All right, some of you are thinking, Paul, that's a technicality. She might not have been on the roof, but what was she doing out there naked bathing like that? Well, in ancient Israel, you didn't have indoor plumbing at this point yet. So if you wanted to have a bath, and we're, we're talking bath, most of you are picturing a large jacuzzi, maybe a bubble bath. You, you're kind of picturing this kind of modern thing. So in, in ancient Israel, if you wanted to bathe or wash, the same word in, is used, it's translated as wash more than it's translated as bathe, but we'll put that aside for the moment. If you wanted to bathe or wash, you had two options. You would go to a public washing area where you would go fully clothed and you would pull up this arm and you'd wipe that and you pull that down and then you do this. And you'd, you, you would do that until you felt like you had kind of washed most, most of your body parts and you'd got it covered. That was one option. Or you would have a, uh, a private bath in your own car- courtyard where you would be surrounded by tall privacy walls and you could have your bath. That's almost certainly what Bathsheba is doing here. Just, just a, a fun fact. She's, of course, not called Bathsheba because she was in the bath, right? Bath means daughter. It just, it just so happened to work out that way. We kind of associated them in our mind. But she is in the courtyard having a bath with uh, tall privacy walls around her, fully expecting privacy And David is on the roof ogling her. He's the peeping Tom. Don't put that on her. Now, some of you are still saying, Paul, okay, I grant you that. But but come on. She could have said no. Take a look at verse 4. David sent messengers and took her. Now, if you want to invite someone out for coffee or a drink, you could send an email, you could send a text, you might send a, put something in the post, or if you're a king, you might send a messenger to get the message across. If you send a delegation to a person, if you're sending multiple messengers, you're probably not going to take no for an answer, right? In addition to that, he probably didn't announce his intentions up front. Uh, if if you have a delegation of messengers arrive at your door and they say the king needs to see you, you're not going to say, well, tell me the purpose of of this visit. I'd like to work out some of the, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with this. There is a clear power dynamic going on here and David knows full well what's happening and he takes full advantage of it. And so as, as as we take a look at this, we're, we're, we're seeing this through her eyes and we're seeing this and every indication is that this is all on David. But did you notice what it said about Bathsheba's motivation? Again, we're hearing this as the, the Bible's narrator wants us to hear it, as God wants us to process this story In verse 4, the only hint that we have of her character and motivation comes there, and it says she's purifying herself from her uncleanness. What was she doing in the bath? Was she trying to find her way into the palace? No, she was obeying the law of God, the, 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 the stipulations that have been laid down by Moses. She is a righteous victim. And yet, Leonard Cohen 
And maybe you and many people over the last 3,000 years have done what people often do to people who are victims. Someone comes forward with an allegation of, of, of sexual assault, and the first question people ask, but what was she wearing? There are people who are assaulted that, that, that instead of being heard and being um, defended and getting justice, they are then accused of breaking up marriages. Even in the church, sexual assault or other forms of assault can happen, and then people, the victims themselves, can be attacked for speaking out. And we've been doing the same thing to Bathsheba for, again, most of the last 3,000 years. And so, for me, the second takeaway from Bathsheba's story it got, is that God sees when people would look at you with shame. When people would, would bring accusations upon you, God will stand to defend you. He will eventually set the record straight. God sees when people would look at you with shame. You say, well, Paul, where is that in the text? What you, how, where did you come up with that? Well, it comes in two, two forms. First of all, I believe the story is very deliberately and explicitly told in a way that will point all of the blame on David and uh, defend the, the purity and the righteousness of Bathsheba, number one. But then as you get to the next chapter, as we will just peek into Second uh, Th- Samuel chapter 12, we'll see that God very explicitly sets the record straight. And so I want to go there now. As we get into 2 Samuel chapter 12, you know this is a time when the prophet Nathan is sent to David. It's a really famous, famous scene where God is now going to confront David. At this point, David has already, in the second half of 2 Samuel 11, killed off Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and he has married Bathsheba. And so uh, th- that's already taken place. But here, even though Bathsheba is married to David at this point, Nathan isn't sent to confront the couple. He, he hasn't sent to, to uh, confront and, and deal with David and Bathsheba. He is sent to David alone. And he tells David this story, a parable of uh, a man and uh, a rich man and a poor man. Uh, The rich man is described as having lots of flocks and herds. He has more animals than he knows what to do with. But the poor man just has one little ewe lamb. And his relationship with that lamb is described with tenderness. In verse 3, it says of the lamb, It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. The word, Hebrew word for daughter is bath or bat. And uh, the very first uh, syllable of Bathsheba's name is the same daughter. He's pointing the connection between this, this innocent, sweet little lamb and uh, Bathsheba herself. So the, the, the poor man's relationship with his one little lamb is described with great tenderness and intimacy But then the rich man has a traveler come and visit him. And the rules of his hospitality would dictate, I've got to put on a big spread for him. Well, he he does want to put on a a big spread to impress his guest. 
But even though he has more flocks and herds than he knows what to do with, he won't sacrifice them. He goes and he takes of this uh, poor man's only lamb. He takes it and he sacrifices it and serves it up for dinner. And the message to David is, this is what you have done to Bathsheba. This is what you've done to Uriah. You've taken this woman and you've served her up like a meal. We usually read this story just from David's perspective. We get to that famous scene where David gets all angry and self-righteous and, boy, we got to kill this guy. And then Nathan turns the tables and says, David, you're the man. And again, we usually read this story with a nameless duck. We only think about David. And so we, we hear this story and we say, you know what? Yeah, we really need to, um, sometimes you really just need to confront people about their sin. That's a good application. Sometimes when people, when God puts his finger on something in your life, you, you really need to, to, to confess that to him. That's a good application. We look at this story and we think about the importance of, of, of repentance and turning and when God convicts you of something. That's a good application. But we almost completely read the story from David's perspective and forget Bathsheba. But Matthew, again, trying to point a connection to Christmas, says, when you read this story, read it from, read it from Bathsheba's point of view now. Here, now we see God confronting David and saying all of the things that Bathsheba would have loved to have said to David had she only had the voice and the position and the power to do so. If she could have spoken to him as an equal, she would have, had, would have said and confronted him about what, what, what he had done to her, what he had done to Uriah. God comes and he speaks on her behalf. He, he speaks on behalf of one who wasn't given a voice. He comes to her defense. And that's part of the Christmas story. We love to think about Jesus as a baby in the manger and it's so cute and it's such a great scene and there's animals and it just works for a great Sunday school lesson. And all those things are amazing. But we forget that Jesus also came as our defender as our advocate. He came to, uh, to vindicate the righteous and to confront the hypocrites and to bring justice in this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate means defender. It can be used of a defense attorney in a court of law, someone who stands at your side, someone who speaks on behalf of those who don't have a voice. Someone who will come to their aid, come to their defense. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have a defender in Jesus Christ. He defends you when you were accused. He stands up for you when you are facing condemnation. He's your advocate. He speaks on your behalf. He stands at your side. He's with you in the battle. That's part of the story of Christmas. That's part of the wonder of God coming into this world in human flesh, that we would have one who would stand on our behalf. And that's what Matthew wants us to remember about Bathsheba's life, about this 
advocate, defender, uh, standing at our side aspect of uh, Jesus that we desperately need and God graciously provides. So, so far we've said God sees you when you're not given a voice. God sees you when uh, people would look at you with shame. And finally, God sees you when you would otherwise be forgotten. He remembers his people when the world would cast them aside. He, he uh, sees when people have forgotten you. Now, Bathsheba is a character who would have very easily been forgotten. You would, you, David would very easily have otherwise just continued on with his conquests, gone on, gone on, and even if he did marry her, you would have forgotten her, and we would not have known anything about her. Um, anyone know... Some, some of you know a, a couple of his wives. Abigail gets some popularity. Anyone know Egla? Tell, can anyone tell me something about Egla and her, her, her relationship with David? Timla, anyone? Oh, we don't know them. They're forgotten. We don't know anything about those wives, and Bathsheba would have been just like them. David would have just kept on going, adding more, forgetting, uh, and we would have forgotten alongside with him. God intervenes and says, no, I have seen what she has suffered. She will not be forgotten. And then Matthew looks back in recounting the Christmas story and says, no, no, I'm going to give you the genealogy. I'm going to tell you what led up to this event, but I want you to see Bathsheba. I want you to go back and remember her and remember what God did to her and for her. God had mercy on Bathsheba and he showed her favor. He did that first by bringing David to repentance. He gave what any victim of, uh, uh, of uh, assault of any kind is most desperately wanting. They want justice and they want this person to admit what they have done, to repent of what they have done and turn and not do it to someone else. God does that very thing. He comes to her aid, he stands at her defense, he confronts the man and brings him to repentance. But then after the child that was born from that night died, God then moved David to compassion. Moved him to pour out an expression of his grace. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, it says this, Then David comforted his wife. Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. God restores Bathsheba from all that David did to her, and he gives her the favored son. And David would otherwise have just gone on and continuing in his ways, but because God has confronted him and brought him to repentance, here this person who would serve up people like a meal, sacrifice them for his own needs, he, here he is now moved to compassion and comfort, and uh, he has a, a son by her. The name Solomon means peace. You can hear, you can see the word shalom in there. It, it speaks to the peace that would characterize Solomon's reign. But the word Jedidiah, it wasn't his legal name. He came to be known by this name Jedidiah. It was, it just means beloved of the Lord. 
This is the one whom God has set his love on. And that would, that would set him apart in the royal court. It would elevate Bathsheba's role in the royal court and in our memories. We remember Bathsheba, Egla, not so much. So God has remembered her grief and blessed her. He's restored dignity to a woman who has been robbed of her dignity. And Matthew includes her here in the genealogy to say Christmas is for people like her. This is what God does. He intervenes to bring relief, to bring justice, to advocate, and and to show that what the world would otherwise forget, he remembers, he sees. People, when we talk about God seeing, we almost always talk about it in the negative, right? Oh, don't, don't do that. God's watching you. He'll, he'll get you. That's, time, that's typically how we talk about God seeing things. But while the, the, the Bible does talk about that aspect of God, at least as much and probably more of the references to God seeing are expressions of reassurance. God sees you. God understands you. God cares for you. So, for instance, Jeremiah 12, 3, it says, But you, O Lord, know me, you see me, and you test my heart toward you. Here, Jeremiah is in this situation where he's on the receiving end of persecution on some wicked, evil people. And God says, and he says to God, God, you see me, you, you know how things are. You know what's happening here. You know my heart before you. Act in a way that would be just. Set things right. And that's what God loves to do. Or in Psalm 33, 18, the psalmist speaks of the way that God keeps his eye on his people. It says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. When I think of that aspect of God seeing his people, I think of a woman on a playground. Like, she can see all the kids, right? She sees all the kids playing, all the things going on, but she never takes her eye off her own child. She has a special love and care and concern for that which is her own. And it's saying, that's the heart of God. He sees his people. He keeps his eye on them. He cares for them. He provides for them. Maybe the greatest expression of this comes in the life of Hagar. Hagar was a, a servant to Abraham, and she is used by him and despised by his wife, Sarah. She's, she is without a voice. She is without position, without, uh, without protection. And as she is experiencing all of that, the angel of the Lord sees her suffering and meets her in the wilderness, and God blesses her. And in Genesis 16, 13, it records her, her, her response, and it's brilliant. She says, it says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. Christmas is the promise that there is a God who sees us a God who looks after us, a God who cares for us. It's a God who understands us. And what greater proof could God possibly give that he really sees us, he really gets us, he understands us, 
what greater proof than he could he give than coming personally into this world himself? Jesus knows what it's like to be without a voice because he was born without a voice, born without position, prominence, born into a poor family as a baby. He didn't come like a king to put his feet up on the rooftop couch of his palace. He came instead as one that was helpless. He was hunted down by a king, not living like a king. And so he understands what it is like to be without a voice. Jesus also understands what it, was, what it is like to be on the receiving end of shame. Jesus was born on shame and he was seen with suspicion by many who would look down on the circumstances of his birth. They treated him with disrespect because he was from Nazareth. And he knows what it's like to be forgotten. Because people tried to snuff Jesus out. They tried to, to, to silence his voice, to, to get rid of him. They eventually succeeded. Though he was dragged down to death, though, the father kept his loving eyes on him. The father never failed to see him, to look at him. And so, though they dragged him down on, in death, on the third day, he was raised to life. And that's the hope that we have. Because of Christmas, we know Jesus has been where we've been. We know Jesus understands. And the promise of scripture is that he sees us. He loves us. And so really the only question that we're left with is whether we'll see him. He looks to us. He is the God of seeing. But he asks whether we will look to him. Whether we will return his gaze and uh, seek him and all uh, his fullness. Will you look to the one who lifts up people like the women we've been seeing in this series? The God who lifts up Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, Mary. Will you put your hope in his love and his deliverance? And will you trust him to restore? Trust him to stand at your side. Trust him to be your vindication and your righteousness. Jesus said, for this is the will of my father. Everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This Christmas, return the gaze of a God who loves you. Even as he has looked to you and looked upon you, look upon Jesus Christ. Look to him for deliverance. Look to him for salvation. Look to him for the mercy that he provides as we look upon him and put our faith and trust in him alone. Let's look to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, it's so easy to feel invisible in our world today. Thank you that you see us. Thank you that you see those who don't have a voice. Thank you that you see those who are treated with shame. And we thank you most of all that you didn't forget us. But you sent Jesus into our world to deliver us. 
I pray that you'd give us your heart for this world. Help us to see as you see. Help us to love as you love. And may we be used of you to spread the message of that love to a world that needs it. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.